Wondery Plus subscribers can listen to 10% Happier early and ad-free right now. Join Wondery Plus in the Wondery app or on Apple Podcasts. Hey, gang. Welcome to another 10% Happier podcast. My guest this week is Sam Harris. I have to explain this all the time. Sam and I are not related, although I really do love the guy. He's he's a phenomenal uh, human being. Um he is, let's just say from the outset, extremely controversial. He's known as an atheist, and he's he takes all sorts of controversial stances on public issues. Interestingly, though, my relationship with him is mostly centered around um, meditation and our lives. We know each other's wives and um, hang out personally. Uh, so the Sam I know is very different from the Sam um, who a lot of people get angry at. And just by way of backstory, I met Sam several years ago when I was moderating a Nightline debate. Uh, the primary uh, antagonists in that debate were Sam Harris and uh, Deepak Chopra. And it, actually, it's worth going back and looking at some of the YouTube clips of that debate. Uh, it's gotten a lot of attention in, in the years uh, in the years that have passed since the debate. Anyway, backstage at that debate, Sam and I were hanging out, getting to know each other a little bit. And he mentioned that he was a, a, a daily meditator, that, which I took really seriously because I was just at the beginning of my practice and thought, well, if a skeptical guy like this is doing it, a guy who's a neuroscientist, it must, there must be something here. And he introduced me to the guy who ultimately became my meditation teacher, Joseph Goldstein. And Joseph and Sam are old, old friends. And just as a side note, I know it's crazy that after more than a year of having a podcast, Joseph has not been on, but I'm, I plan to remedy that soon. Long way of saying that uh, Sam Harris is somebody I count as uh, a real friend. And just as a, another side note, you can actually hear a podcast that we did together with Joe Rogan uh, a couple days ago. Uh, that's a three-hour podcast. This one's a little shorter and much more focused on Sam uh, himself and his work. So without further ado, here he is, Sam Harris. All right. So let me ask you the question I, I ask everybody to start with, which is how did you get into meditation? How Well, it was... Um First, there were a couple of psychedelic experiences, which convinced me that naturally the, occurring or um, uh, drug induced. Are, are are they are they naturally occurring? I don't know. Uh, not not no, for me. No, the, this this was uh, pharmacology uh, enabled. But um, as a kid, as a well, the one that meant something was as an eighteen year old, uh, and that was MDMA. And, Otherwise known as ecstasy, yeah, or Molly to the kids, yeah, yeah. And this was before the kids were into it. I think I was the only person I knew of my generation who had tried it at that point. So it was, this was it was kind of an export from the psychotherapeutic community. I was told you were on the cutting edge of I, I was, of illegality, of, yeah, yeah, drug users. <laughs> uh, but yeah, so I mean, I took it in a context that was not at all like the usual. What was usual now? It wasn't a rave, or or it wasn't that something like Burning Man. I was just sitting on a couch, tr waiting to discover something about the nature of my mind. And man, it, we were different because when I was eighteen year old, eight years old, I had no desire to understand anything about the nature of my mind. Yeah, well, when I was seventeen, I guess I wasn't, but something changed. And I'd had a few experiences before that. I had taken mushrooms as a teenager, and I, I never saw any greater implication of what I experienced there. I mean, I, they, you know, looking back on those experiences, they were psycho, you know, appropriately psychedelic and, and interesting, but I never, it never suggested to me that there was a different way of experiencing the world off of drugs, right? It just, it, it just seemed like, well, that's an interesting drug experience. Whereas on MDMA, the, the, the lesson really was that 
I'm not feeling this way by virtue of my habit patterns and automaticities. And I mean, like the, the experience was of being uh, really sane for the first moment in my life. Mm. I mean, that's that's how I came out of it. And uh, it just, I mean, it's just no longer self-concerned, no longer preoccupied with the voice in my head. And it just seemed like a much more, it was it was a truer version of myself. I mean, that's 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 what I came away feeling. And the implication of that was that I had to find some way to actualize this experience just over the course of my life. And obviously, I couldn't take MDMA every day. I mean, that was not, uh, that never was part of the plan. But I did take, uh, I took LSD, I took a few other psychedelics. And then meditation also became, you know, it was recommended and and I tried it. and, And, you know, obviously, that was a more um, durable path. Right. So we're already, unsurprisingly, since I'm talking to Sam Harris, we're in some something of controversial area here. Because mm-hmm. uh, this is a family podcast, so I'll, I'll, I suspect yeah. some people will be like, drugs are illegal. Uh, I personally have had a panic attack on national television as a consequence of right. doing certain sorts of drugs. Um, so drugs can have all mm-hmm. sorts of um, pernicious effects. Uh, do you have any um, compunction about talking so openly about the what you're describing as the positive impacts of drugs? Yeah, well, and I, when I re- have written about this and spoken about it in the past, uh, there's another side to the story that I, I tell, and I'll tell that now. I mean, I, I don't take psychedelics anymore. I certainly haven't for many years because I've I've acquired a very healthy respect for just how bad an experience you can have on them. And, and this is independent of whether they're physically unhealthy. And I think that story is different depending on the drug you're talking about. I think I think MDMA is probably not good for you. There's certainly some evidence that it's neurotoxic. I mean, there, there's controversy there. There's, there's debate about whether the dosages in those experiments were analogous to the dosages that people take. Uh, but... I think, you know, taking MDMA a lot would worry me purely for physical reasons. I I don't know that there's any evidence that something like LSD is neurotoxic. But the experiences you can have, uh, particularly on on stronger psychedelics like LSD, can be so psychologically destabilizing. And they, whether or not you have a good experience or a bad experience is not really in your hands to control, and so so that so my experience with with LSD, which I took more than anything else, was of the f- the first ten times I took it, I just didn't even see a glimmer of how you could have a bad experience. So I, I'd heard about bad trips, I heard that certain people had them, I just didn't see how that was possible. You know, it just it just it was it was like a non sequitur, but. W- you know, trip number 11 or thereabouts, just the door to hell got kicked open. And then it was always a jar. I mean, then 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 that possibility was sort of always on the table when I when I would uh, take anything, whether it was mushrooms or LSD. And so and some of those trips, I, you know, I only did it a few more times after that. But I came away from a few of them feeling like you know, the, the after effects of uh, you know, having endured a truly harrowing encounter with 
you know, psychosis is really the appropriate word, uh, those lingered for me for months. Wow. Uh, you know, I mean, I just felt like, yeah, this is not a good thing to be doing with your mind or with, with your brain. And but conversely, the positive trips, the effect, those effects lingered for months. You know, so I, I think the the effect it has on you is uh, unfortunately a roll of the dice. And so, they, and obviously, meditation is much more easily governed in that way. And um, so, yeah, I mean, I you know, it's not that I would never do it again, and it's not that I wouldn't recommend it. You know, but you get you, you can only really recommend it with a proviso that you you can't be totally sure what's going to happen. And um, the real benefit for me and and for many people is that. Uh, whether you have a bad trip or a good trip, this is true, but certainly on a, on a good trip, it proves that a, a very different experience of the world is possible. And, you know, I was the kind of person who probably wasn't going to realize that any other way. You know, if, I think if you had taught me how to meditate when I was 18 or 20 and I had never had any drug experience, I think I probably wouldn't have been especially good at it, which is to say I wouldn't have noticed something immediately that was compelling. And I would have come away probably feeling that it was just, it was boring or it was just, you know, I looked inside and didn't see much of interest and then just wanted to get on with my life. Um, and, uh, you know, that, that happens to a lot of people. It happens, I mean, there's so many people who are just not even interested in any form of introspection. Um, so, psychedelics are really a you know a kind of sledgehammer to to take to the normalcy of your own you know, distraction and and uh self concept and it's you know again it it can be extraordinarily pleasant or or the opposite you write about this in a really compelling and often extremely funny way in your excellent book waking up which i've read maybe four or five times oh, oh, um nice. Uh, yeah, I would be embarrassed to show you my copy because it has <laughs> notes all over it. Um, and I'm going to be asking many, many questions based on those notes. Um, so moving on with the chronology here, you're 18, 19, 20. You've done a few experiments, um, some of them, as you describe in your books, a little bit disastrous um, with psychedelics. And then you get into meditation in a pretty deep way. And if I recall, uh, you were a student, an undergrad at Stanford at mm -hmm. the time and you dropped out and, and really dove into the meditation world, the Dharma scene. Yeah, yeah. I had dropped out. This was after my sophomore year. So, But I, I was still living at Stanford uh, for what would have been my junior year. And I did a retreat with Ramdas up in Oregon. Can you tell everybody who that is? Um, Ramdas uh, was originally known as uh, Richard Alpert. Uh, he was a, a Harvard professor and... Uh, the um, colleague of Tim Leary's, who the, the, the two of them got fired. I think they were the first professors fired from Harvard in living memory. Uh, and they got fired for being too loose with the, their LSD protocol and basically giving acid to everyone who, who showed up. <laughs> and, um, yeah, I mean, obviously... There, there are many, many people and many, many very successful, smart people who are grateful for the way they disseminated uh, LSD into the culture. Uh, but you could certainly criticize what they did, and there was, was there was a kind of Schedule One backlash against you know, what they did. Uh, certainly, 
Um, Schedule one meaning illegal. Yeah. yeah so they, so they classified mean, them as uh, illegal drugs. Yeah. Think, so yeah. psychedelics became, from the point of view of the law, indistinguishable from heroin or methamphetamine or anything else that's illegal and can send you to prison. And research on these drugs more or less stopped entirely for for a generation and a half. Yeah, although it's really psilocybin's coming back in the the labs. So it's finally come back, and that's all to the good. But it's a, uh, there was a a backlash. Uh, But anyway, Richard Alpert became Ramdas when he went to India and met his guru and got really into meditation and yoga and uh, then started just teaching meditation uh, for the most part. Um, And mostly taught Vipassana. So that's where I, I learned Vipassana meditation on, on the first retreat. Can you Ramdas. define Vipassana for people? Um, well, listeners to your podcast probably have heard about Vipassana. Let's assume it, nothing. Yeah, yeah. It's um, uh, the, the... I suspect people will be listening to this for the first time because you're on here. Oh, okay. So let's, let's, let's give it to them. Okay. Well, Vipassana is the Pali term, the, the uh, kind of vernacular Sanskrit term for insight, and it is, um, you know, by the the Buddhist tradition that teaches it, considered the 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 oldest and truest and most essential teaching of the, the Buddha, where meditation is concerned. And the the kind of awareness you you cultivate in this practice is now you know widely heard under the name of mindfulness. Um, and it's a um, it's a little more to to vipassana than just mindfulness, but mindfulness really is the the center of the the technique and mindfulness is just a very uh, uncluttered, uh, uh, unconceptual ultimately, and open awareness applied to anything that you happen to be experiencing. So there's nothing you're adding to your experience in order to do it. You don't have a mantra. You're not visualizing anything. Um, you're just you paying attention to whatever it is you happen to notice. And initially, the technique is uh, trained as a um, um, what 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 traditionally is more of a kind of a concentration style practice where you're just focusing on the breath. And so, if you go on a vipassana retreat, you'll be taught to do sitting meditation, and the breath as a as an object of of attention will be recommended to you. But very quickly, as you as you begin to to learn to pay attention, then that that opens up and you pay attention to anything. So it's it's sights and sounds and sensations, and ultimately even thoughts and emotions themselves. So there's nothing in principle excluded from the practice of, of vipassana uh, or mindfulness. And uh, so you're not and you're not even so you're not trying to get rid of your thoughts. You're not trying to get rid of your emotions. You're actually trying to feel and perceive everything as clearly and as fully as possible without being lost in thought about these things. So what we tend to do is we tend to th- view our experience in each moment through this this really unacknowledged scrim of discursivity. We're, we're, we're having a conversation with ourselves in the midst of everything else we're experiencing. And this conversation tends to have the character of judging our experience, criticizing our experience, remembering what we wish we had said, anticipating the thing that's coming next. And we're bouncing, we're just, you know, bouncing back and forth. Um, We're not really going anywhere because there really is only the present moment with thoughts arising and passing away. But we don't see that. We feel feel identical to each thought that comes careening into consciousness. 
and uh, these thoughts, you know, whether if they're unpleasant, they're kindling unpleasant emotions, and if they're pleasant, they're kindling pleasant ones, and we just get buffeted around by by this. And the, the practice of, of mindfulness is the practice of just suddenly, in each moment, for as, for maybe only for a moment at a time, becoming aware of this whole wheelworks and, and, and seeing thoughts and moods and sensations as appearances in consciousness arising and changing and, and passing away in each moment. And so it's, it's, what's great about mindfulness as a technique is that it, because it doesn't entail any Eastern concepts or iconography or ritual, I mean, there, there really is nothing, I mean, it, it, traditionally it's a Buddhist technique, but there's nothing Buddhist about it. You're just paying attention. And it's just a very, it's training it, it's just a very rigorous way of, uh, and a, a systematic way of paying attention to the to the contents of consciousness. Well done. So you are on a, a Vipassana retreat with Ram Das. Interesting because mm-hmm. Ram Das is a Hindu name, mm-hmm. um, and I associate him with sort of Hindu meditation, but he was teaching a Buddhist form of meditation on the retreat you Yeah, went. well, he was, when he was teaching, he may still do this, but he, he was teaching retreats where he would give you a kind of smorgasbord of spiritual practices. So there was Vipassana, there was chanting, there was yoga, there was Sufi dancing. I mean, there was just a lot of stuff, but Vipassana was the the kind of center of it in terms of meditation. And you were cool with the chanting and the Sufi dancing and all that stuff? Yeah, yeah. It was all fun. I mean, it was all, and uh, and I must confess, I think I dropped acid on my first <laughs> Ram Dass retreat, so. Well, I uh, mean, that, that changes it entirely. Yeah, but yes. But I, you know, you're thought of as this famous atheist skeptic guy, so I have a hard time imagining you spinning around uh, Sufi dancing or, you know, chanting Sanskrit and and you to, know to Krishna yeah yeah uh, so was there a change before or after or am I misunderstanding the nature of these experiences? Yeah, well, I, none of those practices require that you believe anything spooky. I mean, it's just it's a um, and I you know it's not. I mean, I, I still love. I don't I mean I don't Sufi dance or it's been it's been a long time, but the I think I could do any of those things without any problem. I mean, because they're just, they're very interesting rituals and the, the kind of the energy of it and the, I mean, the, many of those are, are collective experiences, right? So if you're chanting, you can, you're often chanting in a room with a hundred people and that can be very intense and it's not something that you need to do in a kind of propitiatory prayer way. I mean, you don't have to actually think you're talking to Krishna, Right. Uh, you can just be, and so it doesn't even matter what the sound would be. It just happens to be Krishna, but it could be anything. So, you know, so yeah, I, I could do mantra practice. I, I don't happen to do it, but there'd be no, I'd see no problem doing it. So it's just a a technology, really. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It's 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 a kind of exercise. It's it's a little bit like, I mean, it's like any physical exercise, really, where you could, I mean, you could second get like like like, like lifting weights. You know, you could think, well, why? Why am I lifting these arbitrary heavy objects? You know, and why are they shaped this way? And why you, know, you could you could get wrapped around the axle on all that stuff? But sort of anything is is as good as anything else in that space if you're just connected with the 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 fundamental aspect of the project, which is to to get stronger, right? And when you're chanting, you it is a concentration exercise, and it is a 
if you're chanting to um, the the ideal of enlightenment, you know, whether it's personified by the Buddha or or any other historical or even imaginary figure, you are uh, there's this kind of aspirational devotional. It's a very positive mood that is that you're getting anchored to, and um, yeah, I mean, you just, in my view, you don't have to believe you know anything you don't know uh, or accept anything on bad evidence to do that. Now, the caveat, of course, is that most of the people who are doing these practices and most who have done them historically have believed a lot of. Uh, you know, unjustifiable nonsense in the in the service of these these practices, or or the or the practices were put in the service of a, a, an explicitly religious and dogmatic worldview. And uh, so, you know, I as you know, I really think we have to get out of the religion business. And uh, most people doing quote spiritual practice are don't quite see it the way. I see it. So it's, you know, if you go to the Hare Krishnas and chant and ask them why they're, you know, why are we doing this, they will have a story to tell you about Krishna and um, his real existence in some invisible realm and the, the the usefulness of praying to him and all of that. And obviously that's um, something I think is quite crazy. You, we're, we're going to deviate a little bit from the story of your life, um, but I promise you and our listeners, that we will get back to it. But you've brought us up to a point, um, which I think is worth exploring, which mm-hmm. is one of the main theses of the aforementioned excellent book, Waking Up, which is that we can, that it is possible to have a kind of spirituality without religion. Mm. Yeah. The floor is yours. Well, it, it should be obvious that this is possible because people from all different religions have the same spiritual experience or, or, or importantly similar spiritual experiences. A, a unitive experience. Yeah. So, I mean, so let's just take the experience, let's take two experiences. The experience of unconditional love or, or unconditional compassion, just having your, your kind of emotional doors just blown open and you feel just, just kind of boundless. Uh, a boundless commitment to the happiness of other sentient beings. This is a a, a universal experience that that mystics and contemplatives and just people have testified to for thousands of years. And some people, I mean, and this, this that's very much the character of the experience that many people have on ecstasy or MDMA. And and just to, just to amplify your point, these are people utterly disconnected by geography and chronology, yeah. claiming the same sorts of experience. Yeah, yeah. So and this this is. You know, whether you're going to talk about Jesus or the Desert Fathers or any other saints and and, and uh, contemplatives in the Christian tradition, or it's people like Rumi, you know, among the Sufis, or and the, the, you know, numberless Buddhists and Hindus, you know, devotees of Krishna. It's Krishna's the, the god of love, and you know, this is the state of consciousness that many people are are aiming for. Or shamans and, in the in the in the ancient cultures and yeah. or in t- today's cultures. Uh, uh, and and then again, people on drugs. Sure. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And and the language it can be a little different. I mean, there there are traditions that don't emphasize love to the same degree as others, right? But 
uh, it's just it's just obvious when you pay attention to the literature that that people in in more or less every tradition have testified to this experience to one degree or another. Um, and so, too, with the experience of self-transcendence, just losing the sense of self, losing the sense that there's an ego riding around in your head that is the center of the stream of consciousness, or this, this kind of bobbing along on the on the the stream of consciousness. People can lose that sense and just experience pure consciousness. So there's consciousness and its contents, but the the self is not among the contents. There's just thoughts and emotions and sensations and perceptions. And so that's a different experience. It's not, it's not the same as as boundless love. It's Although a, there is a connection there. Yeah, but you I think you you can definitely have one without the other. You can have you can have the experience of boundless love and still feel like an I, so still feel like a self that's that's you know loving, now, yeah. incredibly loving. Um, and you can experience a loss of the sense of self without anything really changing at the level of your affect. So it's not like you know love just a tsunami of love comes flooding in, although it 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 can, but it, it's just your your selflessness is not predicated on being overwhelmed by a feeling of love or compassion. Uh, so they're, they're distinct, but they're, again, these are experiences that are widely testified to in various traditions. And so you can know our religions are not the best repositories or uh, in, interpretations of that experience because... They all these religions are mutually canceling. They're mutually. They're logically incompatible. You know, if, if you are a Christian, uh, you, you, the central doctrine is there is there is no way to to make significant progress, and certainly no way to be saved, but in the name of Jesus, right? And Jesus was divine. And if if, if you don't believe in, in Jesus's divinity and the fact that he was raised from the dead, well, you're doomed. And 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 everyone from Saint Paul onward. Has said that. Now, of course, there are, there, are Christ, there are Christians who relax their adherence to that dogma to one or another degree. But there is no there's no way around the fact that Christianity is logically incompatible with Islam, and Islam is logically incompatible with Hinduism, and they're all incompatible with Buddhism. And um, so, there has to be a deeper principle here. There's, I mean, none of these. Given that people from all traditions have these experiences, none of these none of these experiences are data points in support of any one of those parochial uh, worldviews. So, and, and yet, every Christian who has the experience of unconditional love or the loss of a sense of self will interpret that in the framework of Christianity as as evidence of the truth of Christianity. So, so a Christian who who is in church praying, who suddenly gets flooded with love for all humanity, will feel like this is the downpouring of the Holy Spirit, or this is the, the grace of God, or, or Jesus has somehow touched their lives. Um, and so, and and a Muslim will have his story, and or, and, a, and a Hindu will have her story, and these are totally incompatible stories. So. We know these traditions, so we know that these experiences are not data points in favor of any of these faiths. And uh, I mean that. So there are many other ways to see why that should be obvious. But the the, the the mutual incompatibility of these faith claims is enough to get us to a point of saying, well, 
there has to be a a more universal account of what's going on, an account of, of the furthest reaches of positive psychology that is not held hostage to accidents of culture and just the, the, the mere fact that someone happened to be born in India as opposed to Pakistan or Japan or somewhere else where they would have been handed a different worldview. Um, okay, so... <laughs> I'm I'm laughing just yeah. because I often no I always go into podcasts with this idea that I'm going to let people tell the story of their lives and then go from there. Right. But now I'm officially dropping that here because you said too many things that I need to follow up on. Okay. So I will get back to the story of your life. I don't sure. think you care what I do, but I'm just no. telling that to the listeners. You talked about selflessness, dropping the I. I think that is such a hard concept for people to grasp. So let's right. just take it on now. Because uh, it is another of the principal theses in Waking Up that that the self is an illusion. This is so hard for people to get. I think most people have never even thought ab- about the self at all. So right. help us understand, A, what you're talking about here, and B, how it would be at all useful for us in our daily lives. Well... I mean, so the, the the utility is is a kind of a separate question. It is useful because when you look at the nature of your suffering psychologically, the self is really the 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 string upon which all of these negative states, mental states, are strung. I mean, yeah, but I think a lot of people listening to this might feel like ah, I'm not suffering. What are you talking about? I'm not. No, right. no, there are no crows pecking out my innards. I'm fine. Yeah, and and so those people are difficult to reach with with an argument that suggests that if you'd only look more closely at your life, you would discover that that you are, you're, you're moved in each moment by a sense of dissatisfaction that may, in fact, be unacknowledged, right? So, like, you're just moving on to the next thing, but there's a, a stress uh, in your life that is motivating more or less everything you do. Your, your, your life has the character of a kind of long emergency, and yet, it, there are people who are happy enough, or lucky enough, or you know, positive enough that if you ask them, "Well, is, are you stressed out? Are you moved by a, pr- a profound sense of dissatisfaction? Are you overlooking the present moment, kind of compulsively trying to get on to the next thing, even if in the, the present moment is full of the thing you thought you wanted a moment ago?" Um, they are. They're kind of. Um, they're deeply insensitive to to the dynamics of what's happening, and they and if you have a you know a satisfying enough life for long enough, yeah, you can spend years and just have seen no point to this kind of consideration. Well, that's that's fine. You're you're a very happy person, very lucky, and not in a lot of physical pain, and you know no one's died. You know that you that and you're not you're one of these people. You're probably not Jewish, but you're one of these people who don't think about death, right? You know, it's like you're not actually thinking about the possibility of your, you know, parents dying or your kids dying or, I mean, you know. Um, Just for those of us, anybody wondering there, that you, you're half Jewish. Yeah. Uh, yeah. It, between us, we make uh, one Jew. Right, right. Yes. And by the way, we're not related. We're not related. Just, yes, no, yeah. no, it's a, diff- a different strand of Judaism. But so, yeah, you're not – there are people like this who – just um, and there, there are many good ways. I mean, this, this, this is a psychologically 
strong way to be. It's nice to be resilient, right, and not to suffer much. You know, so some of you get frustrated, but you, you, the thing you were, were counting, was, the thing you were counting on, doesn't happen, and you spend two minutes being disappointed rather than two days or two weeks, right? So there are people who are very lucky, just by dint of genes and and upbringing, and they're not shopping for a path to enlightenment because they, they don't see a problem, right? It doesn't mean there isn't a problem. It doesn't mean that they're not going to crash and burn sometime, right? So a lot, a lot of what spiritual life is or and, you know, and contemplative practice is is a kind of training for the bad times, right? It's like you're kind of getting ready for the worst day of your life, right? And the worst day of your life is coming, right? If it hasn't happened already, it'll, it will happen eventually, Right and now you 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 know with any luck your bad times will not be as bad as humanly possible right it's possible to have uh, you know a, a just an unendurably bad life right and we all we're all hoping we get luckier than that but uh, and if you have the free time to listen to this podcast you probably are luckier than that but it, you, there's just no telling what's going to happen to any of us in the future and. In the future, as in the present, your mind is all you have, right? Your mind, your your ability to be happy uh, or be at peace in the midst of what is happening is whatever it is in this moment. And if it's if it's untested in this moment because you have everything you want and you're comfortable, well, then you don't really know what tools you have to work with when. You know the the wheels start coming off, and you know pe- people who have thought a lot about this have discovered that there are some tools that are worth having in hand, and and when you become sensitive to how it is you suffer, um, it's it's there's there there really there's not a lot going on there. They're not novel processes. It's just whenever you're suffering, you know, really suffering you are lost in thought. I mean, you are thinking. And the, the, these blows are meted out by your own mind on itself through this, this automaticity of just thinking without, without knowing that you're thinking. Um, so the, the next thought arises, and it just it seems to be you. It seems to be what you are, and you feel that you're the thinker of your thoughts. And this is kind of paradoxical. You, you think that the, you think you're... The author, the thought just arises, right, from you, from who knows where. Uh, you certainly don't see it arise, and you certainly don't author it, but being identified with it carries with it the, the felt sense that you are the thinker. It seems to create a thinker that, that is separate from the thoughts. Um, so if you're listening to me now and you, and you don't really get what I'm saying, you might be thinking, well, what, what is this guy talking about? Right, so that thought, what is this guy talking about? Just just emerges, and it feels like you, right? It feel, it, 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 the, the sense of self is is a product of of not seeing a thought as a thought arising in a a larger condition of consciousness or or or, or the mind. And meditation training is a way of recognizing the prior condition in which thoughts and sensations and everything else arises. 
And, and at a certain point, you can notice thoughts themselves arise and, and, not be, and not be any more identified with the voice in your head than, than you are with my voice. I mean, so, so I'm, in, in understanding what I'm saying now, just notice here, so, you know, if, you, if you're a speaker of English, you are, through no intention of your own, helplessly decoding the sounds I'm making now and understanding them, right? So these, like, you can't, you, you, it's interesting to consider, I mean, you have absolutely no free will here. It's like, you can't decide not to understand what I'm saying. I mean, that's just the, the word, the sound is coming in and it's meaningful to you. Uh, if you don't understand something I said, well, then you just, you, you don't understand it through no free will of your own. I mean, you just, you're just, you can't, this is, this is being imposed on on your mind, well, you know, one way or the other. And you, your own thoughts are just like this. They just arise, right? And you don't actually know what you will think next any more than you know what I'm going to say next, right? It's just, it's, it, it feels like you in a way that my voice doesn't feel like you. But it is, if you pay attention, fundamentally just as surprising, just as it's just as novel. It's just as ungoverned by you. It's just, it's, it's, you're not choosing it. You can't, to choose what you think would require that you think it before you think it, right? I mean, how can you, I mean, there's a simple way to demonstrate this. So, But can't you, I'm sorry to interrupt, yeah. but can't you direct your thoughts? Can't you say, okay, I'm going to sit down and think about pastrami sandwiches now? Yeah, but, but where did pastrami sandwiches come from? Right, so you can, you can do that, but of all the things My you, Jewish heritage. Right, exactly, yes. But, so you had a choice there, or an apparent choice. You could have said anything, right? You didn't know, so like what, why did you pick, of all the foodstuffs you know, I mean, you know probably hundreds of things you could have said there. Um, you can't even explain why you went to food as opposed to cities or movies or relationships or famous people. or I mean, you could have gone to anything, right? Any category of 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 thing to think about. But you went to food and then you went to pastrami, but you could have gone to anything else that you, you're aware of. So, uh, and we know, for instance, if we were scanning your brain at that moment and, you know, with, with the brain scanner of the future, but I mean, this is virtually possible now, we could have told you, we, we would have known in the lab that you were going for food and pastrami before you knew you were doing that, right? So like the consciousness is not the first to know that the word pastrami is going to come out of your mouth. Your pastrami sandwich circuits were, were already firing probably for, you know, at least a second before. And, and if, we, if, if you had sampled your experience during that second, you would subjectively have felt that you were still in the process of making up your mind, searching for an example, Right. Um, so I certainly didn't know coming into the podcast that the word pastrami would eat up this much bandwidth. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I'm glad it did. Yeah. But, just for the record, but our mind, our minds are always like this, right? They they seem familiar, right? But in each moment, it is deeply mysterious how any of this is happening. You know, it just I mean, it's like just how how you understand what I'm saying, how, you know, how I get to the end of this sentence is something that is mysterious. And, and when I fail to do it, if I make a grammatical error, that it, that's also mysterious. I mean, the, the successes and the failures are both mysterious. And again, there, there is no one in the driver's seat here. There, there are simply more the thoughts and sensations and moods and, and all of the phenomenon of conscious life are simply arising and passing in each moment. 
and the sense that there's a a rider on the horse is again this is that's what it feels like to be thinking without knowing that you're thinking without recognizing the, the next thought emerge in consciousness and when you can do that what you find and this is this comes back to your question of well, you know why any of this matters is that you find that it's impossible to suffer the kind of classic negative mind states for more than a moment at a time. So like let's say you're angry, right, or terrified or really anxious about something you have to do. Those mental states, again, are, are, are borne aloft in each moment by thinking. And if you, uh, you know, if, if, you, if you have very strong mindfulness and can just, you could just like a laser beam, shine your attention on the, the, the process of thinking to really notice thoughts arise and pass away, uh, and you can f- and you can focus very clearly on an emotion like anger or fear. Uh, the half life of these emotions, when you're no longer thinking about them, is is I mean, it's just moments, right? I mean, you could you couldn't stay angry for. I mean, most people think they can stay angry for an hour, right, or even longer. It's impossible without just thinking about all the reasons why you have every right to be angry. Just right? re-upping. Yeah, you just got to keep. You have to keep. You have to keep producing this emotion based on the thoughts that are justifying it, and the only way to do that is to be lost in those thoughts. I mean, you can't actually. If you if you see the thought as a thought, it's just. It's like my voice. In your head, you know, it's it's just an object in consciousness. It's not, it's not. It doesn't have the same imperative. It doesn't doesn't link to emotion in the same way. And so, I mean, this can so so this way of being in the world cancels, you know, all of the you know, classical negative emotions and the things we do as a result of them. So just think of the I mean, the difference between being angry. If you know, someone does something that makes me angry, uh, and I you know can be reasonably mindful. I might, you know, stay angry for a few moments and then notice how angry I am and then it begins to just fall off because I because I then I then notice that you know, I'm suffering for no reason, right? There's no there's no like it's nothing it's not it's not equipping me to do anything useful and I'm the one meeting out this negative experience to myself. So uh but so the difference between that and staying angry for an hour or a day and acting, speaking and acting on the basis of that anger is enormous. I mean, just think of how people destroy their lives and their relationships and their reputations based on just their negative mental state. So if you want to, if just again, back to the pure utility and taking this out of metaphysics or philosophy or, or even, you know, grand goals like enlightenment, you know, if you, if you want being able to decide to drop your anger or drop your embarrassment or drop your anxiety because it's not useful is like a superpower in this world. I mean, most people don't have it. You know, most people are just lived by that. Like, they're, they're full commitment. You know, they're going to be as angry as they get. And, it, and then the time course is who knows what, and they will have said or done who knows what in the meantime. And, and you can see the consequences in people's lives. Um, 
to to decide. And again, that the the what this way of talking about it is a little misleading because you know the free will is not you know is kind of the the, the flip side of selflessness is you know the free will is also an illusion, right? So it's not it's not like there's there's a self who can who's deciding, but uh, to speak, you know, very kind of conventionally about this, to to have the choice to no longer indulge this negative emotion that is leading nowhere worth going is a is a hugely empowering and, and hugely useful skill to develop. And meditation is the way to develop that. Um, and but beyond that, it's just a fact that to become more and more sensitive to the character of your own thoughts begins to reveal that that for the most part they're not being lost in thought is not making you happy it's not making you it's like the way you want to be the the, the, the moments in life that come upon you that are your peak moments the moments you keep trying to get back to do tend to have this character of not being moments when you were just ruminating about your life. Yeah, you're in the zone. You're, you're the moments of just of you know they've been called flow or you know, peak experiences. These are moments where, whether it's through athletics or uh, music. You know, music or or just creativity or sex or drugs or I mean some something has caused your mind to just go full immersion into whatever it is. You know, it's like it's like the best food experience you've ever had, you know, like the first bite of your favorite dish. Uh, whatever it is, you're it, it's it's collapsing the distance between observer and observed. And people crave that for good reason, but medit- what meditation is is a way of having that experience on demand regardless of what's happening. Right. So, and even in the midst of, of you know, technically unpleasant experience. So, I mean, there's kind of there's a kind of equalizing function here where meditation can equalize pleasant and unpleasant experiences because you 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 realize that the thing that is aware of pleasure is the same thing that's aware of pain uh, or joy and sadness or you know, and it's not opposites. a thing. It's not a thing. It's just, and if you keep falling back into that position of just being the space in which these experiences arise, well, then that that distance between, I mean, it just so happens. This is just kind of a happy accident that being concentrated, which is really the opposite of being distracted by thought, um, has a kind of intrinsic pleasantness to it. And and one of the things we like about flow experiences um, is this concentration of mind. And because when you look at like, it's kind of strange that many of these things that are so satisfying when we're in the zone are satisfying at all. I mean, what what is satisfying about, what should be satisfying about any of these athletic experiences, say? So like, you know, you know shooting a basketball, right? Like if you just feel like you're completely at one with this experience of grabbing the ball, jumping, shooting, dribbling. I mean, this is totally arbitrary. I mean, like what, like what could be possibly pleasant about any of that, right? But being in the zone for that is incredibly pleasant. Um, but so it is with everything else, dancing. Or I mean, like what? Why? why would moving your body in this way 
be pleasant at all, right? But now, it, and it's not pleasant at all if you're, you know, un- uncomfortable, if you're, you're self-conscious, you don't know how to dance, people are looking at you, you're just, you're neurotic, well, then it's not pleasant. But if you know how to dance and you feel great doing it and you're th- now doing it in a way that is where you're totally at one with it, where you're not a step ahead or a step behind. You're not, not thinking about pastrami. Yeah, you're, and you're not thinking about even, you're not even thinking about dancing, right? Right. You're just, there's just no distance. You're being danced. Yeah. This show is brought to you by BetterHelp. I got to tell you, I feel so much better when I talk about my anxiety instead of keeping it bottled up. There's an expression that I first heard from the great researcher and also Zen practitioner Robert Waldinger, never worry alone. Our temptation many times is to keep it bottled up, but the data really show that the people who do the best in life, who live the longest and are the happiest, have strong relationships with people with whom they can talk about whatever's going on in their lives. And for me, therapy is part of that. If you're thinking of starting therapy, you might give BetterHelp a try. It's entirely online designed to be convenient, flexible, and suited to your schedule. Get it off your chest with BetterHelp. Visit betterhelp.com slash happier today to get 10% off your first month. That's betterhelp, H-E-L-P dot com slash happier. You can count on T-Mobile to help keep you connected after investing billions to light up their network from big cities to small towns. T-Mobile is America's largest 5G network. Plus, when you switch to T-Mobile, families and small businesses can save up to 20% versus Verizon and AT&T. Visit your neighborhood store or T-Mobile.com to switch. Plan savings with T-Mobile, third line free on essentials via monthly bill, credits versus comparable available plans. Plan features may vary. Credits stop if you cancel or change plans. That is, it's a completely arbitrary thing to do, but it's, it's magically pleasant to do it. But, and, and the component that is delivering the, the high, for the most part, I mean, there, there may be other things, but certainly part of it is just concentration. It's just it's this feature of mind of just being, just, just not being distracted anymore. Being distracted is a kind of stress that, uh, most people only overcome in a very haphazard way. I mean, they think it was the dancing or the basketball or the surfing or the sex or whatever it was that where they, they got there for, for a second and a half. But meditation is a way of you know, taking responsibility for this process and, and, and dissecting out the variable that is actually universal, which is it's just you know the distraction versus the alternative. And... And then it's just the practice of non-distraction, whatever you're paying attention to. But let me just go back to the the idea of selflessness or Mm. not self or whatever you want to call it. The fact that that the self is an illusion. I mean, I I just worry that people still are going to struggle with it because I know they do. I know they do because I have for seven years of looking into it. Right. Because – we feel we feel very much like they're, they're, I'm here, you know, and I see myself in the mirror, and I have to put my pants on in the morning, and I got to make a, a dentist appointments under my name. So uh, it's it's counterintuitive, at the least, yeah. to say that the self is an illusion. Yeah. Well, we use this term self in 
a few different ways, and there, there are ways. There are certainly selves that are not illusory. So, the the self as just the person. Uh, I'm not saying that people are illusions, right? So, yeah. So, so to talk about Dan Harris, the person, is not a, a sign of confusion, and your biographical self is distinct from somebody else's. Um, <clears throat> And on that level, yourself is synonymous with your physical body, the whole, the whole body, and its history, right? And um, we can talk about the, the subjective or objective side of that, but it's the totality of you. Uh, that's not the self that people feel they have moment to moment. I mean, so, so for instance, most people don't feel identical to their bodies. They feel like they have bodies. They feel like they're riding around in a body as though it were a kind of vehicle. Yeah, I mean, I don't really feel like I have much relationship with my appendix. Right. But even even like your hand, I mean, you can imagine being without a hand. Yes. And you feel like you're in control of it, but you're not down there in the hand, really. You're up, up here in your head, and you look down at the hand, and you say, well, that's my hand. Um, but so the, the body, most of it at any rate, is being appropriated from some point of view that is inside the head. That is not an, identical to the head. I mean, it feels like you're inside your head. And when someone looks at you, you feel like they're looking at you, but you feel like you're behind your eyes in some sense. You're not really – you're not just your body. You're, it's, it's not that your body is – being looked at, you are, you're in relationship to your body to some degree, and you don't. There are parts that you you don't like your body, or your body is malfunctioning, or it's getting old, or your, you know, parts of it hurt, and and yet, you're you're at some distance from all of that, you know. So if there's a pain somewhere, you are, you are this this low this subject in your head, that's aware of the pain, and if you're going to pay attention to it or try to ignore it. You're doing all that in this in this from this point of view of, of being related to the to the rest of of what's happening in your body, um, and obviously there's there's you know, most of what's happening in your body you're totally unaware of. So like your appendix, you're you're not even aware of actually having one directly. You just happen to know that you probably have one, but you're and and most of your body is like that. So. It's this strange, the self as the ego, uh, the, the the lived sense of self, is not the same thing as just being your body or having a history or being a person in the world or being the the kind of narr- the the autobiographical self. Where you, you know you have this, um, the memories you may or may not have about your past, right? So like so, there are. You know, there, there, there are experiences that you have had that you know you've had just by dint of, I mean, just logically you must have had them, but you may re- not remember anything about them, right? So those, it's not that they, they happen to somebody else, but you can't summon any episodic memory about it, but it's just, you know, it's like, like let's say you don't remember what you had for breakfast three weeks ago. You know, this, you, there must have been something, right? Um, uh, but you just can't recall um, obviously, most of your life you can't recall, but still, that was you in this sort of autobiographical self. But 
you know, again, you, most of the cells in your body have changed over a time course of, of weeks or years, depending on the, the organ system we're talking about. Um, and you have a microbiome, which is a bunch of other cells yeah, in your gut. Exactly. So, yeah, most of the cells in your body aren't even human. And yet it, this this whole constellation of, of uh, parts seems to be you. And, we, and, and so it, and it's not illusory to talk about you, the person, in that sense, right? Because you're, you're still, you know, we, we can locate you in space and the boundary between you, you your, your, your skin and the rest of the world is, it's not totally arbitrary to talk about you as being separate from the world, even though, again, it is, it is you're permeable to the world. I mean, you know, your microbiome is you know, the next thing you eat is is populating you you with you know bacteria from the world, and now they're you, right? Uh, so it, it is to some degree a convention even to t- different, differentiate you as a physical system from the world. I mean, you are permeable to the world, and you know, g- giving yourself back to the world and consuming the world, and it's I mean, you're part of this river of of um, you know, chemistry and biology that that is doesn't have clear boundaries. But uh, if we ignore all that, talking about a person um, makes sense. Talking about this self that is interior to the person, which is the self people really feel they have, that doesn't survive analysis. And when you look for that self, there's nothing to find. And that's the the really the punchline of meditation. Um, I mean, you, what, what, you, what you can do is find it to be absent in a way that is conclusive. So you you can look hard enough and long enough and carefully enough and discover that the thing you thought was there isn't. And then that then your experience of meditation cha- changes uh, you know, subtly, but but significantly because. Then you're no longer meditating from the point of view of the meditator who's paying attention in a calculated way to the contents of consciousness. There's no longer this sense that, okay, I'm up here and I'm being mindful, and oh, that now I'm on the breath, now I'm hearing a sound, now like so all of that, again, uh, that subject-object dichotomy. That's the thing that breaks down if you look carefully enough for the subject. All right, I'm going to stop you here yeah. because. You've gotten into what I have an agenda, and mm. my real not-so-secret agenda is to get at what you're talking about right now. It wasn't pastrami? It wasn't pastrami, although I will allow myself the liber- you know, to have many agendas. Uh-huh. Um, so this is a, a, a hobby horse of yours, that, the, that within the meditation world, there mm. are— there, the word meditation is, as my friend Richie Davidson likes to say, uh, like the word sports. There are lots of different kinds of meditation. But for you, the highest form of meditation is really to see the through the illusion of the self. However, most of us, when we're taught to meditate, are, especially at the beginning, it's, as you said, we're just watching the breath coming in and going out. Mm. And then we get lost and we start again. And we get lost, and we start again, and again, and again, and again. And, and as many times as you get lost, it's totally fine. You just start again. Uh, so you were the first one to recommend to me that I go on a meditation retreat where I was taught this kind of meditation. But yeah. then I read your book, Waking Up, and you're actually saying, ah, but the real the, the real juice is in, in seeing that the self is an illusion. So that gets me confused and makes me think that I'm doing it wrong. 
Yeah, yeah. Well, it can take a while to notice this. I mean, again, it's it's not there's nothing wrong with doing dualistic subject-object meditation because it's it's the only place for most of us to start. I mean, that's where it's it's you have to start somewhere. And By dualistic object subject-object meditation, you mean me. Uh, what feels like me yeah. watching my breath, feeling my breath coming in and going out. Yeah. So that's there's dualist. There's two parts. That's what you mean. Yeah. I mean, so the the sense of being. Yeah. I mean, I, I would I would think I think of this as kind of two stages of mindfulness. So initially, the the clear distinction between mindfulness and its counterfeits uh, is. An ability to just notice what is in fact arising in consciousness in that moment, whether it's a sound or a sensation or the breath, um, and to notice the difference between that and thinking about what what's and, and thinking about what's happening and and viewing everything through this. Um, this screen of, of concepts. So, like, you know, this is something that Joseph Goldstein teaches a lot when he's... Uh, uh, he's my meditation teacher and yeah. a dude that you introduced me to. Yeah. And somebody who is going to come up in a big way in this conversation because you recorded a bunch of podcasts with him that have confused the crap out of right, me. So right. uh, we're going to get to that. Yeah, so Joseph, Joseph, I think, is the best meditation teacher around. He's, he's just fantastic, and he's an old friend. Um so he'll talk about, for instance, if you're, let's say you're being mindful of the, the sensation of your hands. So you could press your two hands together and you feel that sensation. And now most people who don't really know how to meditate will say, okay, well, I can feel that. I'm, you know, I can feel my hands. Uh, but if you've, if you've done Vipassana practice for any length of time, you'll know that if you really pay attention, the, the idea of the concept of hands it just goes away. I mean, it is just a concept. And if you pay closer attention, you'll see that you don't really feel hands. You feel this kind of cloud of sensation that is just buzzing with you know, heat and cold and vibration and, and pressure. And there, there's constituents, kind of atoms of, of, of um, perception that are not, none of, none of which are hands, mm. right? And so you can just, so Joseph will say something like, well, see if you can let go of the shape of your hands and just pay attention to the sensations. And, and people with a little bit of concentration can do that. But, and, and so that, that's mindfulness, right? So that you, and you can do that with pain in the body. You can do it with an emotion like anger, right? So you, you feel anger, you feel worried, and you bring your attention to you say you can ask the question well how do you know you feel angry i mean wait, you must feel, be feeling something so what does it feel like in your face what does it feel like in your chest and then you be that that pattern of energy that is anger just begins to resolve itself into just pure energy in the body right and it just it it, it no longer at least in that moment it no longer has the implication it had a moment ago when you were just busy being angry. Right. right? Now, I get all this. This okay. is the way most of us practice mindfulness. Yes. But you're so, talking about an, an additional exactly. level. Exactly. Yeah, so, yeah, so, so that's, that's kind of the first order of mindfulness where the difference is, okay, so I'm no longer lost in thought. I'm no longer bewildered by the, the conceptual mask of hands and anger, and I'm actually connecting with raw sensation, right? 
Uh, and there's a liberation that comes with that because you can you can be become very patient with physical pain under that kind of attention, and you can you can break free of negative emotions like anger by just paying close attention to them and getting out of your thoughts. But most people do that for the longest time from a position of still feeling like they're the one doing it, right? So like it's not synonymous, but it's cutting through the the concept of hands and connecting with just raw sensation for most people is not synonymous with the insight that there is no observer separate from the observed. There's no right? Dan feeling yes. the sensations in what we would conceptually call the hand. Right. So it's possible to, to, to feel yeah. like you're Dan doing that and still notice that there's the, the, the shape of the hands disappears or that anger just diffuses into a cloud of, of meaningless uh, s- stimuli. Uh, so so the, the, the next stage of mindfulness is one where you notice that there's actually no, you know, and this, again, this is, a, this is not something other than what is taught in Vipassana. It's just that people don't necessarily get it, you know, you know on demand uh, or anytime soon. Um, there, is no, there is no observer apart from just the, the raw observing. There is no seer apart from just seeing. Um, and there's and that collapse of subject-object. I mean, initially we start out feeling like there's a seer and the thing seen and then the action of seeing. And all of that can collapse into just pure seeing or pure feeling or pure hearing. And that, in, 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 in Vipassana language, that insight that there's no one there doing it is is the Pali word is anatta, which is, is selflessness or no self. And um, you know, technically speaking, from the from the view point of view of Buddhist psychology, an insight into anatta is there to be had. I mean, because the, 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 the self it's not like the self is there and you wind up destroying it through the process of meditation. It's actually not there. So yeah. if, if you're paying close enough attention. You, it should it should seem like it's not there. Yeah, right? it's Santa Claus. Yeah, yeah. So it's you know it's like it, it, it's it's um it shouldn't be surprising that it's possible to pay attention closely enough to have it feel like there is no self doing the doing the attending. Okay, so how do we break out of what you call first order mindfulness uh, to this? I want to say deeper, but you are going to have a qualm with uh, you're going to have a problem with that because uh, actually you point, your argument, and I think this is a very good argument, is that actually seeing selflessness does not require you to go deep per se. It's actually right, right there to be seen on the surface of, of experience. How do we go to second order mindfulness? How do we go to the more this superior insight? Right. Well, it's um, I mean, it's a little tricky. I mean, there are useful pointers to it, and, and the way I did it was through what's called Dzogchen practice, which is a Tibetan teaching, and and that was so. I, I had to go. I personally, I had to go outside of the Vipassana and find another way of uh, of engaging meditation. Let me just interrupt you briefly, just to point out that you have uh, an amazing podcast also called Waking Up, mm. available wherever you get your podcasts. And um, you have a lengthy conversation with Joseph Goldstein. Uh, the title of that podcast is The 
path and the goal, or uh, the goal it, and the path? Yeah, that, that's one of them. Yeah, you have a couple, yeah. but, yeah, but the, the one where you really the go at goal, this, yeah. the path and the goal, and you gently and f- and in a very friendly way, but harangue him about uh, v- yeah. v- the type of meditation he teaches, Vipassana, and its demerits you know, as it as it pertains to this insight that you you believe is so important, which is the illusion of the self. Right. So carry on what, we, what you were saying. But I do recommend that everybody go listen to that because it's completely fascinating. Um, and it is what is motivating a lot of the questions I am going to proceed to ask you. Yeah. Uh, yeah, so jo- Joseph and I have been fighting about this for years in a good-natured way. And yeah, he tells a story about being stuck on a plane trip to Australia with you. Yeah. Where you corner yeah. him and he yeah, can't yeah. get out. So, so I was I was Joseph's student. I mean, jo- Joseph was one of my first Vipassana teachers, and I did many retreats with him, and then did uh, retreats where we were s- both sitting with other great Vipassana teachers, like you know, Saida Upandita, uh, several times for you know, famous Burmese teacher. Yeah, so for a couple months at a time, and so I was I was Joseph's student, and then Joseph's co-student with other Vipassana teachers, and then. Um, under, to some degree, my inspiration, but a few other people involved, um, I got Joseph and Sharon and other Vipassana teachers to go sit with... Sharon Salzberg. Yeah. yeah. Great teachers from other traditions. So, so the great Dzogchen teachers in the, in the Tibetan tradition. We went and saw this this uh, Hindu guru, uh, Punjaji, who was roiling the Vipassana scene for a while um, with his um, emphasis on the... Um, Really, that there being there was no reason to meditate. It was this is the kind of the, the teaching of Advaita Vedanta, where it's basically it's the steepest possible path. It's just either you can recognize there's no self or not, but there's, if you if you can't, there's nothing to do about it. There's nothing. You just have you just have to sit here in the room with me and 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 listen to what I'm saying um, until you get the point. And if you get the point, there's no reason to meditate. If you don't get the point, meditation's hopeless. You're not going to polish a brick into a mirror, you know. So just recognize that you're already free. That's you know that's a, a, a shorthand version of, of um, this Advaita non-dual pa- teaching in what is nominally Hinduism, but it's, it's it doesn't really entail any of the the panoply of, of gods and goddesses you associate with with Hinduism. So um, so we went and saw Punjaji. Uh, and then we we also went to to um, see Tuku Urgen Rinpoche, who's a very famous Dzogchen master. And Dzogchen is the the teaching within Tibetan Buddhism that is most like a a kind of a fusion of of Advaita Vedanta and Zen. I mean, for lack of a, a better reference, I mean, it's, it's it's totally. It doesn't have any of the garishness of that you associate with Tibetan Buddhism, which is kind of the, the Buddhist version of Hinduism in, in, in terms of its how, how uh, baroquely religious it seems, at least if you go through the front door. But if you go through the back door, as we did, you, you meet these really just pure teachings about non-dual awareness, which, I mean, yes, I mean, there's more of t- Tibetan Buddhism that, that um, people kind of urge upon you in that context, but really that the core teaching is just just kind of pure selfless awareness, and the technique is 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 really there's there really is there's very little technique apart from recognizing that looking for the looking for the looker. I mean, looking for the the one who thinks he's trying to meditate. 
and recognizing that that there's there is there is no center there. There's no there's no one who's paying attention. There's just attention. But didn't the, you did, right there? Didn't yeah. you just kind of answer? My the question that set us down this route, which is how does one go from first order mindfulness to second order mindfulness? If one is just to go back to what you said, if you're holding right. your hands together and you're feeling the cloud of sensations, um, you might notice that it feels like you feeling them. Then all one has to do is look for the feeling of you that is feeling it, right. and you can see fleetingly. There's no but nothing to find. Isn't it? Is it more? Complicated than that? Um, not necessarily. It's it's a but it can that can be confusing. It, it, people can waste a lot of time or 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 ge- be genuinely uncertain whether they have glimpsed this thing that they should be paying attention to. And I mean, so, so the thing that this is the thing that Joseph and I fight about. And this is the thing that I have always felt is misleading about the path of Vipassana. Um, so if you're paying attention to, well, let's come back to the hand. So, so the you start out feeling like, well, I don't, I'm just distracted all the time. I don't know how to meditate. I'm not good at this. Um, and now I'm paying attention strategically to sensation. You start with the breath and other things. But let's say you, let's say you're, you're you're now you're paying attention to the sensation of your hands, and your vipassana teacher says, well, now just get closer and closer. Really, just dive into the sensations there. And you'll notice that the shape of the hands disappear, and you'll get into all of this the subtlety, which is in fact truer. You know, so it's just pressure, just tingling, and just you can you can your your attention beca- can become kind of laser-like, and you can you can just you really can dis- discover a a wilderness of of change in anything you pay attention to, and. Um, that can become incredibly pleasant, and that becomes you know, altogether different than being lost in thought. And in fact, if you do that, if you get concentrated enough, you know, for, to- for periods of time where thoughts don't even arise, right? So it's just pure witnessing of raw sensation, and that begins to feel like, well, now meditation is really working. You know, this is now I'm making progress, but it it carries with it the implication that. The truth is somehow deeper in experience, and and you so you you have to start from where you are as the one who's paying attention, and get deeper into the things you're noticing, kind of plunging deeper into sensations or your or moods or you know images in your mind or whatever you're paying attention to, and um, that that's actually a false view certainly from the from if the goal is to notice that there's no self subtlety and kind of the the, the, the grabbing a hold of the microscope and putting on the the strongest powered lens and looking at more and more subtlety in your experience that doesn't get you any closer to this truth of no self in fact no self can be realized Whatever you're noticing, no matter how vaguely you're noticing it, without any, you know, whether you feel your hands or not, right? Um, and how? It, it is in the direction of looking for the one who's looking. So it's like so what you, I described before. Exactly what you described before. But the thing that people don't realize is that they they expect again. Th- there's there's a, a kind of a, a gradualism that gets assumed 
by the usual course of meditation where you can sort of gra- you can sort of gradually get closer to this thing you can kind of build up momentum you can go deeper and then people try to do that they turn they try to turn that same tool onto the subject and again they're trying to go deeper they're trying to plunge into something they they know not what i mean it's not clear what there is to plunge into there when you start looking for the looker or looking at the mind but the sense is well there's got to be there, there's got to be some process. There's got to be something gradual. There's some movement, but the the actual fact is that you either notice it in the first moment, or you're you've already overshot the mark, mm-hmm. right? So it's like like it is not gradual. It's like it, it is instantaneous, and so it's the, it's sort of the moment you turn, there can be this 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 open space of neither subject nor object. So you you look for the you look for the looker you see that there's nothing to see. It's like it's a, ironically the best metaphor for this that that comes outside of any tradition um but uh, it's from from this man uh, who, who has since died uh, Douglas Harding. I think I think he was initially a, a student of Zen but he was an architect who you know was exploring various different methods of meditation and came upon his own metaphor here, which is really a little more than a metaphor. But he he wrote a book called On Having No Head, and uh, he he came to this experience where he was in he was in the Himalayas and he was looking at the, I think he was at Nagarkot, which is which is near Kathmandu, but it's a it's a place where it gives you a, a huge view of of the the mountains, and he was looking at Everest and and all, all the mountains, and noticed for a, a moment that he couldn't see he, he didn't see his head right his head wasn't part of the scene right it was just it was just the scene and where his head was where he knew his head to be there was just the world right um and given how predicated our sense of self is on the sense that we're inside our heads this feeling of headlessness is a is a pretty good marker for this this loss of a sense of of, of there being a center to consciousness. I mean, it's, it's possible. It's not totally the same thing. It, it can be kind of. It's not clear to me that everyone who follows Harding's path takes it quite as far as as someone who's who's practicing Dzogchen within within their framework, but. I think it, Let me I, just signpost that book for a yeah. second, On Having No Head. On Having No Head, Which, yeah. by the way, you recommended to me, and, and then Joseph also recommended to me. I, right. I've read it uh, many, many times. It's a slim volume, and basically all he asks you to do is look out at the world in a given moment, try to find your head. Right. Um, can't find it. And then it becomes, and at first this feels very stupid. Uh, you, feel, well, to me at least, it felt like either dumb or t- then totally obvious. But then after a while, I found trying it and not expecting to go deeper, but just seeing what happens in those first instances of looking for the looker. Right. I'm going to borrow some phraseology from you. You start to notice that all that's left is the world. Right. It's like, boom, all that's happening here uh, is not me peering out at the world through my eye sockets, but actually this yawning chasm of knowing just like raw knowing of of whatever's there, right. um, and that is actually readily available anytime you look for it, um, and really very very interesting. And it can untie the knot of suffering that comes anytime you're angry or frustrated or whatever. 
all super useful. And yet, and yet, I feel like people don't get it often. And uh, Max, who's in the next room over here, my mm -hmm. friend who uh, came because he's a fan of yours, not because he's a fan of mine, to mm -hmm. watch this interview. Uh, I love you, Max. Um, you know, he was saying to me recently, like, I love Sam's book, Waking Up, but I tried the headless this, headlessness thing and I just can't get it. Right. And I fear as I sort of gingerly move into the world of talking about what's beyond first order mindfulness, that people just aren't going to get it. And I don't know if you have any thoughts about how to make this clearer to people or how it can become clearer to people through practice? Yeah, you know, it, it's a little mysterious because it's not, um, I mean, I w I've been with, I've I studied with many Dzogchen teachers and there's some who, in my mind, clearly point out this centerlessness or this, this headlessness in a way that I really, I, I couldn't imagine someone not getting it if they st stayed long enough in, the, in that dialogue. But you're but, saying we need to go find a teacher? Because I well, can learn about mindfulness in a book. Yeah, I mean, that's, that's it. Well, I mean, to take the Dzogchen, I mean, this, there's something, something a little doctrinaire about this, but from the Dzogchen teaching side, you absolutely need to find a qualified Dzogchen master to point this out to you right now. To my, you know, I feel in my gut that there's a little bit of religious mumbo-jumbo sneaking into that edict, right? Because this is just the nature of consciousness. You shouldn't, you shouldn't need a, you know, a, a, someone who holds the trademark of Dzogchen to, to deliver the truth to you. But the truth is I needed, apparently I needed a, a particular Dzogchen teacher to point this out to me. I, I, mean, I had read all the books. I had taught, I'd, I'd considered the the nature of of subject object awareness i had done you know months and months of vipassana practice on retreat i had studied with punjaji this this uh, non dual advaita guru who was teaching the same thing but there was there was a precision to to what the way in which tukurgan was teaching it where I got I, I got it in a way where it was it was no longer I mean, what, what had been true before is I'd had experiences in meditation and with people like Punjaji where I had there had been this loss of of self for a moment at a time but it just came and went it's like it was not something that I could just do on my own it was just I would just had to hope it would happen to me in the next in the next time I I meditated by vir and it was by virtue of concentration by virtue of uh, who knows what but it wasn't mindfulness or just paying attention wasn't synonymous with this insight that there's no self, right? Now, Dzogchen is the, I mean, the way I would define Dzogchen in Vipassana terms, I would say that Dzogchen is just the practice of non-dual mindfulness. It's, 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 where, it's where mindfulness becomes synonymous with the practice of no self. And so then it really doesn't matter what you pay attention to. You can be looking at the sky. You can be feeling your breath. You can be walking down the sidewalk. Um, and then you're just, you're just wherever you, you – the, the alternation is not between being lost in thought and then being very focused on the object of meditation. It's the, alter, it's the alteration between being lost in thought and there being no self. So how right. do you meditate? It's just I, I, I notice I'm lost in thought. You know, every everyone who's meditating, the antithesis of their meditation, whatever their practice is, whether it's a concentration practice, whether they're, you know, chanting to Krishna, whether they're 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 doing um, TM or doing doing vipassana or doing dzogchen, 
it's what you do the moment you're lost in thought, right? You're lost in thought. You're thinking about, you know, watching West, whether you set the DVR to, to record Westworld tonight or whatever it is. But so you're, you're thinking about something that has nothing to do with, with your practice, right? And you don't know you're thinking, right? And then, then, then there's that moment where you realize, oh, wait a minute, I'm thinking about uh, television. Now what do you go, well, then now what happens to your attention, right? If you're an ordinary mindfulness yogi, you will see the thought itself as language and image and images just sort of disappear in some strange way, right? So you, you'll, it's like, who knows, where does a thought go when it's no longer there? It's, just, it's, it's something mysterious there. But you'll see it just kind of fade away. And uh, then you can pay attention to your, you can go back to the breath or back to sensations in the body or go back to the mantra that you were, you were um, chanting if you're, or repeating silently if you're doing TM. But there can still be this sense that there's there's someone in the center of consciousness. There's some, there's some you know someone riding the horse, and with Zogchen, you no longer like you have looked for the rider. On the, it, mindfulness uh, has been a matter of looking for the rider on the horse and not finding him, and so then there's just so when the when the the thought disappears, what you're left with is just consciousness and its contents. Without and without the sense that there's a center to it, there's a centerlessness to it, and um, I don't understand that. Well, so, so it's it's again that the feeling of a center is the feeling that that consciousness is kind of emanating from a locus in the head. I mean, there's a few ways to flip this around. So, for instance, I mean, most people, I mean, if you cl- if you close your eyes and and just try to pay attention to whatever it is, the sound of my voice or your breath or just feel your body sitting there, you'll probably feel that you're, again, you'll feel that you're in your head in a way that you're not in your knee, right? Um, so there's a, there's a, the center of your head is closer to where you are as, as a, a subject. And you might feel that your consciousness is in your head, right? But what you're calling a head, right? The sensation of having a head, the pressure, the t- the t- temperature. I mean, any any signature that you can notice that is telling you you have a head, all of that's in consciousness, right? It's not consciousness is not in. Now speaking, I'm not speaking as a matter of physics. I'm speaking as a matter of just experience. Anything you can experience, including your head, is in consciousness. So there's just there's just consciousness and its contents, right? Include which includes your head. Which includes the world, which includes and and so there's 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 not there's not too like the, the place you see with your eyes open is the same place you are with your eyes closed. It's the same it's the same place you're thinking, right? So like if you're looking with your eyes open, and you think, well, that's the world, and my yet my thoughts are are not out, out in the world. My thoughts are in my head, right? I mean, the, but no, your thought your thoughts are in this same place you see. With your eyes open, and you could actually superimpose a thought into your visual space. So you could just, you know, in the table in front of us, I could visualize something, you know, whatever a pastrami sandwich. I can visualize that now. Now some people are better at visualizing things than others. So so you know some some people can only dimly sort of flash an image that is somewhat pastrami like, um, but some people can really visualize very clearly. But whatever your ability is there. 
there's there's likely a difference between visualizing a sandwich and visualizing a crocodile, right? So there's just there's you when I say when I said cro- before I said crocodile, there was nothing there. If I said crocodile, you probably got some image of something. Now that image was if your eyes were open was superimposed on whatever you were seeing, right? It's, it's the same space as your visual world and uh, neurologically speaking, it's it's all it's all happening in the same part of the brain. I mean when you visualize something, your occipital lobe is doing that work in the same way that it's doing the work when you are seeing something, you know, with your eyes open. Uh, it's just not as um, it's it's just not as vivid. So your your waking life has very much the character of a dream, both you know, neurologically and phenomenally, because it's the same you know brain processes delivering these this this movie, right? And you can experience, yet most of us experience that there's this dichotomy. There's the stuff that's happening in the head, and then there's all the stuff that's out in the world. Um, but the experience really is of uh, just consciousness and its contents all the time. And so, this, so the, the, the sense of a center is, I mean, there, there's a, a logical way to, to see how there, there can't be a self, too, because so... I mean, if there's this sense of self has to feel like something, otherwise people wouldn't think they they had it, right? I mean, so like, and and you would never you'd never be able to say you you felt like you lost it. I mean, there's got to be a difference between feeling like a self and feeling and, and feeling like you have no self. So there's some there's some perceptible some. I mean, however inscrutable it is, there's something different, right? That can be noticed. Well, if there is some signature of the self, well, then that must be appearing in consciousness in some way, right? There's got to be something showing up. Well, if it if something is showing up, it is an object in consciousness. It is in consciousness. And therefore, consciousness is prior to it. I mean, in the same way, consciousness is prior to the sight of this cup I'm holding in my hand or my seeing you across the table. I mean, there's 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 consciousness and its contents. And so... If so, consciousness must transcend this thing that you're taking yourself to be, right? So, if the self is this feeling in the chest, or this feeling on your face, or you know, this like just think of what happens when self-consciousness gets magnified. So, there's moments we're going through life where we don't feel especially self-conscious. We may not feel selfless, but we don't. We're not. You wouldn't describe yourself as being self-conscious, but then there are those moments where all of a sudden you, you notice someone's looking at you, or you've just done something embarrassing, or whatever it is, and all of a sudden you're you, there's this kind of recoil into your personhood where you just feel like there's something is it's a kind of a cramp. It's like it all gets intensified. Whatever you are taking yourself to be, that's like whatever that muscle is. That's what it feels like when it really contracts. Right, really, you're, you're you're flexing yourself when you become self-conscious. Um, you know, someone points at you, you know, points at your face, or it's like, oh, you got something on your, you got something on your corner of your mouth there, Dan. <laughs> right, so whatever it is that makes you like, 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 oh no, is, is it me? I'm the problem, right? So like that sense of okay, everyone's looking at my face. It's that thing again. That's all appearing in consciousness. The energy of that is an object in consciousness. Consciousness is the prior condition of that, right? So consciousness is just the empty space 
And you are you. It, so in the same way that you can recognize that you are not identical to your breath because you're aware of your breath. And you're not identical to me because you're aware of me. You're not identical to my voice because you're just aware of it. It's, it's not. You're prior to. You're the prior condition of any of this appearing, right? And that is true of this thing. It's it's, it's certainly true of self consciousness, right? The, the, the energy of that, and it's true of the that the the central fact of just feeling like there's a a center, and. You know, I don't know the the only way to discover that is to look for the center and whether you want to look for your head or you look for the thinker of of, of the thought or you, you look for in the moment of I really have a persistent wife. <laughs> well, <laughs> there's your phone. Yeah, uh, um, so I'm glad you brought up your wife because we are at uh, an interesting juncture here because both of our wives are going to be sitting down at a restaurant right. in 15 minutes, a restaurant where I'm pretty sure they will not be serving pastrami. Right. And I am like an eighth of the way through the questions I had uh, listed for you. So well, I'm long-winded. No, you're interesting. So, so what I think we should do is close with okay. the promise that you will come back or I will come to you sure. at some point. Yeah. Um, because the last thing we want to do... Leave our, our wives. Leave, leave our wives at dinner. <laughs> no, well, they would us. they would plot against us. Yeah. A and also it would you know maybe make our lives unpleasant to have them angry at us. But before we go, just tell people where they can find out more about you and and hear more from you because I've mentioned waking up the book and mm. the podcast. But are there other places people should go? Uh, no, well, just my website samharris.org, uh, not dot com. That'll get you the the singer. And yes, I, and podcasting is most of what I'm putting out there now, although I, I have a blog and I, I'm uh, developing a meditation app that will eventually come out. I, I've just underestimated how difficult it is to build an app. Well, let me tell you, I, yeah, you, I feel you. You know you. about that. Yeah. Yes, I do. It's very hard to build an app. Yeah. Um, um, yeah. Uh, thank yeah. you very much. Uh, a pleasure. Really appreciate it. Yeah. Super fun. To be continued. Let's not anger our wives. <laughs> okay. <laughs> Okay, there's another edition of the 10% Happier Podcast. If you liked it, please make sure to uh, subscribe, rate us. And uh, if you want to suggest topics we should cover or guests uh, we should bring in, hit me up on Twitter, at Dan B. Harris. I also want to thank heartily the people who produce this podcast and really do pretty much all the work. Lauren Efron, Josh Cohan, Sarah Amos, Andrew Kalb, Steve Jones, and the head of ABC News Digital, Dan Silver. Uh, I'll talk to you next Wednesday. If you like 10% Happier, and I hope you do, uh, you can listen early and ad-free right now by joining Wondery Plus in the Wondery app or on Apple Podcasts. Prime members can listen ad-free on Amazon Music. Before you go, tell us about yourself by filling out a short survey at wondery.com slash survey. Once upon a beat, remember those stories and fables that would capture your imagination and you couldn't wait to see how they would unfold? And now, when you read them as an adult, you think some of these old tales could use a fresh spin. We have a perfect podcast to bring you the stories you remember, remix, and reimagine for the kids in your life today. Join me, DJ Fu, and my trusty turntable, Baby Scratch, as we spin up new tales in the New Kids and Family Podcast, Once Upon a Beat. Yeah. Wondry and Tinkercast are bringing you a jam-packed, 
music field weekly party where hip hop and fables meet. It's Once Upon a Beat. Follow Once Upon a Beat on the Wondry app or wherever you get your podcasts. You can listen to Once Upon a Beat early and ad free right now by joining Wondry Plus in the Wondry app or Wondry Kids Plus in Apple Podcasts. Once Upon a Beat. For more than two centuries, the White House has been the stage for some of the most dramatic scenes in American history. Inspired by the hit podcast American History Tellers, Wondery and William Morrow present the new book, The Hidden History of the White House. Each chapter will bring you inside the fierce power struggles, the world-altering decisions, and shocking scandals that have shaped our nation. You'll be there when the very foundations of the White House are laid in 1792, and you'll watch as the British burn it down in 1814. Then you'll hear the intimate conversations between FDR and Winston Churchill as they make plans to defeat Nazi forces in 1941. And you'll be in the Situation Room when President Barack Obama approves the raid to bring down the most infamous terrorist in American history. Pre-order The Hidden History of the White House now in hardcover or digital editions wherever you get your books.